How are you guys doing this morning? You all right? You guys see this big thing of water over here? At the end of the service today, we have a couple people that are going to be baptized this morning, and such an awesome thing that we as a church get to share in with others when they take a step to proclaim Jesus in their life and then go in the waters of baptism just for us, symbolizing what Jesus has done in their life and also making a statement to you guys that they've devoted their lives to Christ and they're going to follow after him with all they have. And it's timely that we get into the section of Scripture this morning in Matthew chapter 10, where we talk about Jesus calling 12 disciples to himself to follow after him. And so if you guys want to turn there to Matthew chapter 10, that's where we're going to be this morning. <coughs> Cords everywhere. Um, man, I'm like wet in my underwear and everything this morning from the first service. I'm so uncomfortable right now. <laughs> it's so awkward. Sorry, I'm an overshare. Um, so, a week and a half ago, last week was my birthday, and um, a week and a half ago, yeah, my, my wife took me out to dinner, and we were sitting there having a conversation, deep in conversation, and she said, uh, I'm trying to recover from that last comment. So, um, <laughs> deep in conversation, she asked a really good question. She's so intuitive, and she just said, now that we're almost 11 years into planting this church, if you knew what we'd go through in the last 11 years, would you do it all over again? And um, honestly, like, I just started bawling. It was the craziest experience for me. I'm still trying to figure out uh, the why of all of that and why I was, I was so emotional. But one of the things that I was thinking about was oftentimes in life when we make a decision to follow Jesus, we, we jump in. We never know what's ahead, Right? If you knew the, the end from the beginning in your life, would we choose to actually jump in on certain things? Probably not. By God's grace, like we jumped in, and then 11 years later, um, you know, there's all this experience. We call it wisdom, right? But there's all this hurt and pain experience, like ups and downs, goods, bad, like everything that's involved in that, um, that if we knew from the beginning, we probably wouldn't jump into these things. And that's, with most of life, you dive into things that are full of uncertainty, However, with discipleship, it's really interesting to me that we, when we talk about following Jesus with other people, we don't often say to them, hey, do you want to follow Jesus? They're like, uh, what's that mean? You go, oh, that means, uh, do you want peace? Yeah. Do you want hope? Yeah. Do you want love? Yeah. Do you, do you want forgiveness of your sins? Yeah. Well, then you're in, man. Like, just say you want those things, and that's what Jesus does for you. He gives you those things, and that's all truth. But what we don't often do is sit people down and say, Let's talk about the cost of following Jesus. Um, because yes, there are all these rewards to following him, but it doesn't come without a price. And we don't often paint the full picture for people. And so as we get into this text today, what I want to do is kind of paint a more holistic picture for us of discipleship, um, what Jesus's picture of discipleship was, what it was he was calling his disciples to, not just a life of hope and joy and peace and love, which was part of it, but it was a life actually of sacrifice, and it was a life actually of a lot of laying their own lives down to follow after him, and it was a lot of ups, and it was a lot of downs, and it was persecution, and for all of them that are mentioned in this list, it actually meant death. And so it's interesting that we get to this section of scripture today where we're talking about discipleship and following Jesus, and yet paired with baptism, what an awesome picture we have of people who are saying like, I'm all in. Like, regardless of what's ahead, I'm all in because I just want to follow Jesus and I trust him with my life wholeheartedly. So 
Anyway, would you pray with me? And let's jump into this. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. Um, God, I thank you for each individual, each soul represented in this room. Um, God, I'm praying that your hand be upon this time this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are Emmanuel, God, with us. And we pray that you'd be with us in the service this morning. I ask Jesus that your spirit would come, that you would use your word to um, dig deep into the, the roots of our heart, um, Jesus. We ask that you would do a work in us that only you can do, that you'd use your scripture to shine a light on the areas of our heart that needs to be dealt with, Lord. I pray that it also, this morning, would be an opportunity to be encouraged, that though there's so much junk happening in the world, we thank you for lives that are being saved for you, for people that are making a decision to follow after you, and we rejoice with the heavens, God, in, in any opportunity that somebody has had to come to know you in a very personal, sacrificial way. And so, Jesus, we give you this time this morning, and we pray you'd be honored um, through this teaching, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So, I don't know about you guys, but have any of you in this room ever been in a situation in your life where you've experienced panic as a result of being lost? Anybody? A handful of you. Some of you just are lost, so you're like, I'm literally there right now, man, like panicking, I'm freaking out. Um, so I don't, I don't know about you, but there's been a couple instances in my life where I've faced, um, been lost and faced literal anxiety and panic trying to figure out how the heck I was going to get out of situations that I was in. And uncertainty causes us to just kind of be trapped sometimes and feel paralyzed. Uh, when I was 17 or 18 years old, I used to snowboard a lot, and I went with this group of guys, um, this snowboard team that I was part of, and we, we all lived in Coeur d'Alene. We went over to Montana, and we went snowboarding at Big Mountain. Anybody ever been over to Big Mountain? I think they renamed it now, but anyway, it used to be called Big Mountain because it's a big mountain. Get that. Uh, literally, it's big. And we went over to go snowboard for a weekend, and I remember our, I'd been there before, but um, this time around, I was with my buddies, and we kind of got to do whatever we wanted, and so we asked around, like, where's the good places? Where do you find the best snow? And uh, one of the guys told us, well, if you want the best snow, you go off to the backside, you drop in on this run. Um, remember, there's no lifts back there. It's not actually legit runs, but you will find the best untouched powder on the whole mountain back on this section of the mountain. He said, however, just remember that at some point, you're going to have to hang a left and traverse back across the mountain to get around back to the front, because if you go too far, you will get low enough that you'll get trapped on that side of the mountain, and you will struggle to find your way out. I'm like, oh, that sounds fun. Let's do it. And so we all go back there. We hit the side of the mountain. It was the best snow that we had hit um, of the day, and we... Uh, we were coming down and we're trying to figure out where the heck the turn is like to come off, but it's not a legit part of the mountain, right? So there's no signs pointing anywhere. And so we just keep going and we keep going. Finally, we end up at the bottom of this, this run in a, like an alpine, frozen over alpine lake. And we're sort of hanging out, trying to figure out like, well, we probably went too far. Um, how in the heck are we going to get back to the front? It's 3.30, the mountain's about to close, it's getting dark out. And I'm like panicking inside thinking, I have no idea where I'm at or how to get back, but now we've got to unstrap our boards and literally just walk back around the mountain and hopefully find some sign of life or a road or a building or something like that. And so we walked for probably a good hour and got back around the mountain. It was dark by the time we got back around, and we finally found a road that was able to lead us back up to the lodge where we had to be. I say all that to say it was a time in my life where 
um, I legitimately was lost. And the panic that I felt deep down inside as a result of being lost was like nerve-wracking. And I don't know if you've ever been there before. But there, there, there's, there's seasons in your life where you come into um, maybe times where you are so lost and it seems so dark, um, like you just don't know your way around and you realize that you just need a rescue. Like I need somebody to step in and get me out of this because I'm not going to be able to find my way out of this on my own. And this is sort of like the miracle of being saved in the sense that uh, Jesus obviously like saves us. He rescues us from the darkness. But we who were lost and we who were scattered, we who could not make it back around ourselves, we who found ourselves in a place of needing rescue, um, and ultimately it was Jesus who needed to reach down and provide this rescue for us. We needed a way out of the dark. We, some of us even in this room today find yourselves in like a hopeless cycle in your life. This world has you trapped in sin and in this hopeless cycle and you're spinning out and you're lost. You're literally trying to figure out how to get out and this is the purpose of Jesus is to actually provide a way out for us that we couldn't do on our own. But this morning, I want to read to the, um, starting from the end of the passage that Dan so eloquently taught through last week, uh, and then I want to work our way into just four verses in chapter 10, which won't be a lot. Um, but I, I want you to keep this feeling of relief and this feeling of freedom that maybe you once had at a point in your life when you were lost and then you were found. And I'm not just saying at the point of salvation, I'm just saying, was there a point in your life where you can relate to this, where there was a relief brought when you were found and you were lost? And I want you to keep that at the forefront of your mind. So we're going to start at chapter 9, uh, verse 35. It says this, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12, of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, uh, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who, who betrayed him. And so this passage begins with Jesus looking over these crowds and having compassion over them, it says, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew 9, 36. And what an interesting statement that Matthew is actually making, that Jesus honestly felt bad for the people because he realized that they weren't being led, that they were lost, that they were scattered, that they were sheep without a shepherd, that they were wandering aimlessly, and that they weren't just wandering. Like, I, I love the verbiage that the ESV Bible translation says um, on this passage because it says harassed and helpless. And I asked myself the question, like, what does that mean to be harassed and helpless? It means that people were troubled. It means that people were literally distressed, that they were distracted, do we have people like that today? Helpless, distressed, distracted, harassed, and helpless. And there was something not right in the world. 
And it pained Jesus that people were wandering aimlessly, helplessly, and that sin was the thing that was attacking them, that was troubling them, and that people had no escape, that they had no rescue. And so Jesus sees this crowd of people, and his heart breaks for them. He has compassion for them, and he knows that ultimately this group of people, they need to be led. They need a shepherd. And then he looks to this dedicated group of guys, these 12 that have been following him around, right? These groupies. And he he refers to them as his disciples. And he tells them that the harvest is plentiful. And he says that the laborers are few, that the harvest is prime, and that everything is ready. But there are few laborers, very few, to go out into the fields to begin to harvest and reap the crop that the Lord has caused to grow. And so now we, we know that Jesus is giving this illustration and that he's listening to us, followers of Jesus, that he's calling us his laborers. That he's saying there's this harvest of people who are lost and scattered. And there's these laborers, those of you who know me, who I've actually called to go out into the harvest, to reap this harvest. Have you guys ever seen a, a crop that's ready to be harvested and yet nobody's harvested it? Anybody ever seen that before? Where it's just like, a crop is falling off of the branches and yet nobody's going to harvest it. It's just hanging there. It's just chilling. When I was in Ethiopia like 10 years ago, this crazy experience where we went out into the middle of nowhere out into this village and saw the most insane poverty that I've ever seen in my whole entire life. And yet as we were driving out towards this village and passing through the towns, there was field upon field upon field of corn everywhere. I mean, as far as I could see, cornfields. And the corn was literally falling off of the husk. It was so ripe. There was so much of it. And I looked at this pastor that, I, that we were with, and I said, it's interesting to me that there's so many people that are starving in it. There's so much corn. Why? And I remember the guy saying to me, um, well, we kind of get sick of corn. <laughs> like, we have so much corn. Like, we, everything we eat has corn in it. Like, at some point, you just can't harvest enough corn. Like, you just don't want it anymore because there's, we have it all the time. It's just become a staple to them. And the little side note, like I was thinking about, was the fact that, like, so Jesus has started this harvest. It's grown. And it's like the corn is literally falling off the husks. And we sometimes think to ourselves, like, I don't know if I'm the evangelist. I don't know if I'm the person that wants to go out and tell people about Jesus and actually call them in. I think that's pretty awkward. I'm not sure that I'm built with that. I'm too busy in my life. I have too much going on. I can't go tell her, go tell people about the Lord. Like, I wish I had more time in my life, yada, 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 make whatever excuse you want to. At the end of the day, the Lord has actually caused the harvest to happen. The corn is literally hanging off the husk. And what Jesus is saying to us is, would you co-labor with me to go pick the stuff off the husk, man. You didn't have to do any of the work for it. It's literally there and it's ripe and he's asked you to go pick it. And what he's talking about is with regards to salvation. Like we are the laborers. The harvest that he's caused is there. It's ripe. It's ready. He's asked us to be the ones to go out and share this good news of Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom with others that they would receive, inherit what it is, the gift that we've been given. But I think sometimes we are similar to 
these people that I had met in Ethiopia. Like, we know that the harvest Jesus is preparing for us and that it's of people. We know, if you've grown up in the church, that you are equated to this laborer that he's sent out to preach the kingdom and salvation to help the lost and, and, and to help people find a shepherd. However, we're sort of over it. And I think we're more concerned with our lives than the harvest that's to be reaped. And so we'll often sit back and be like, I'm just too busy. There's too much, God, there's other people that you've called. Oh, Chris seems to like that kind of stuff. Like, send him out to go do that. Whoever it is, like, that person's more extroverted than I. Tell them to go out and do it. And Jesus is going, brothers and sisters, the corn is literally hanging off the husk. I paid the ultimate sacrifice to prepare this ripe harvest. Will you be the ones to go out and begin to reap the harvest that he's prepared for us? And so Jesus goes on to tell them that after this, he says, um, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And what an awesome challenge this is. So Jesus uses this agricultural type verbiage, talking about the Lord of the harvest, the one who has authority over the weather, the one who, who, who makes conditions proper for the harvest so that it can be reaped. Every year for the farmers, he does this. We need to pray to the Lord of the harvest, the one who provides it, that he will send out the laborers to work to reap his harvest. Now, sometimes as a pastor, it's easier for me to stand up here and be like, all right, when you guys leave these four doors, uh, these four walls this afternoon, I want you to go out and I want you to find one person. And you're going to tell them about Jesus this afternoon. And then every week I'm just going to be like, hey, when you leave here, you need to go do this, go do this, go do this. And at the end of the day, there's nothing driving you to go do it except for the fact that I've told you to go do it. And I sometimes wonder how different would it look if I just said to you guys this afternoon, Get on your hands and knees and let's pray and ask Jesus to give us the opportunities to share him this afternoon. You don't need Chris to do that. You need the one who's actually the Lord of the harvest, the one who storms stop when he speaks, the one who healed the lame and gave sound to the mute, the one who gave sight to the blind, go down the list, the one who actually works like. That God is the one who actually instills in us the ability to go out and to be a part of bringing the harvest in. We co-labor with Jesus in this work. It's not just up to you and I, and it's not just some simple thing where I say today, like, go do this, and this is what it means to follow Jesus. Go out, and I just want you to, like, tell three people today, and then you can do your quota for the week, and we're all good. It's like, I want this to be a church, a people where we are led by the spirit of the living God, the Lord of the harvest, to actually go out and begin to pick the corn that he's provided. We need to earnestly pray to him that he will send out laborers to do the work to reap his harvest. So um, I'm not sure if you guys ever trip out about this kind of stuff, but for me, sometimes I think about this stuff the fact that it's Jesus' harvest to be reaped, which is crazy to me. He's asking us to go out and reap his harvest, souls saved, um, that, but that he's called us out to be the laborers, to co-labor with him in the work of salvation in reaching those that are shepherdless. I mean, does this not just blow you guys away? The God of the universe, who in an instant can say, ready, harvest reaps, right? Like, all souls saved, has actually said, Sons and daughters, like, 
why don't you come into this work with me? Why don't you co-labor with me to reap this harvest that I've provided? And how amazing is that, that the creator of the universe, the God of all, has invited you into that journey with him to be a part of that work. And so it seems kind of selfish sometimes when we stand back and we be like, eh, I'm good. I don't like corn. <laughs> I've had so much of it. My life is so busy. And it seems kind of ridiculous sometimes when you put it in those kind of terms, but that's really what we do. Instead of, because we know, right? Like, I know that if I get up at 6 a.m. tomorrow and I go, Jesus, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would guide my day and that you would lead me into opportunities to share your gospel with others. I know when I pray that prayer, what's going to happen. I'm literally going to have an opportunity that day. And so what do I do, choose to do at 6 a.m. every morning? I'm too busy. I'm not even going to pray the prayer because I don't want to think about it. My life is busy. I'm too uncomfortable. Like, I'm just not going to do it. And we back ourselves out of the opportunity to go reap the, like, it's sort of like staring a crop in the face and seeing it falling off the husk and just going, eh, I'm good. And it's like, that seems like a waste, does it not? Does it not seem like a waste? And he's called you to co-labor with him to go begin to reap this harvest. Fast forward. So, um, chapter 10. He says, and he called to him as 12 disciples. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every, every affliction. So I want to zone in on just this passage for a second. When we read the word disciple or we read the word follower when we see it in Scripture in our Bibles, um, there's an Aramaic word behind the English, behind the Greek, um, and it's this word Talmud or Talmudim, it is in the plural. And it means follower, it means disciple. Talmud means follower, disciple. Talmudim are followers or disciples. That's the word that's being used. And in our Western world, there's really no concept in in like contemporary Western um, culture. We have no concept or no parallel for this word Talmud. We don't quite understand it because we translate it as disciple or follower, but there's no place in our culture where someone who voluntarily seeks to follow something and identify with their master, this person they're following, in all areas of their life. Somebody who totally devotes or dedicates their life to becoming like the master that they're following in every way. Like, we don't understand that in our culture. Like, in order for us to have any sort of base of understanding with this, um, I I would sort of relate it to like a, a trade apprentice, like somebody who works in the trades and is apprenticing under somebody. Somebody who spends years with the master craftsman or with the soldier at boot camp who, whose identity in the midst of their apprenticeship or as a soldier in boot camp, they literally lose their own identity. They, they cut their hair. They wear different clothes. They begin to look like the person that's leading them. They eat differently. They act, talk differently. Um, everything about them changes. Like the old was stripped away and it's replaced with the ways of the soldier or the ways of uh, the, the, the tradesmen, the craftsmen that they're following after. But even that example for us falls short. We do not understand culturally what this meant, what Jesus was saying. The only thing we might be able to relate it to that's kind of gnarly is a cult. So when we think of cults in the United States, we think of people who are coerced to follow somebody and made to do so, right? That's the difference with Jesus. 
is Jesus never coerced anybody. Jesus actually goes to these 12 and he calls them, but they have the opportunity to voluntarily choose to follow after him. And when they voluntarily choose to follow after him, we're going to get into this in the next couple weeks, they choose to leave everything behind, forsake everything to devote their lives to becoming like their rabbi, Jesus, is what they were doing. So after years of walking with Jesus as his Talmudim, these, uh, these disciples, his closest companions still didn't even get it. Like Philip asked Jesus to show him the Father and that, and that that will be enough for us. Like he didn't understand that Jesus and the Father were actually one. And in many ways, I, I think that we've become sort of contractual Christians in a lot of ways. We've made this mistake of thinking that evangelism is limited to simply converting people to a system of beliefs. So if we're going to evangelize, I just want people to believe like I believe. We're not asking them to follow after us. How many of you guys would be freaked out if somebody followed after you? Did what you did, dressed how you dressed, said we, anybody, would you be freaked out? We'd be like, uh, you're a fanboy. You know what I mean? Like, you're sketching me out, leave me alone. But literally, Jesus is calling them, and he's asking them to become like him. Like the rabbi, to walk with the rabbi. And I think that in America, anyway, we have the, we've like ruined this verbiage of following Jesus. It, it's so watered down in our Western mindset because for us, we don't understand the honor that's bestowed upon us by being called out to follow a rabbi. We don't understand that, that a young Jewish boy would have been elated to have studied under their rabbi. They, from five years old on, they would have been training to hopefully be taken on by a rabbi to follow after their rabbi. And so you have these disciples who some would argue are like between 14 and 18 years old that are being called to follow Jesus. And who do you have in this crew that Jesus is asking to follow him? You have all the rejects that didn't get called out by any other rabbis in the right time. So they've chosen to take on trades. So they're fishermen or they're tax collectors. Go down the list of what they are. They were not the cream of the crop Jewish kids that were getting called out by the rabbis. And so Jesus is going to the lesser of the people and he's saying, like, I'm calling you to follow me. Come be like me. Spend time with me. Learn from me. Teach like me. Walk with me. Eat with me. Share your life with me. And so for this group of men, you have to understand the honor and the weight that they would have felt in being asked to follow after Jesus. Like for them, it would have been next level. We don't get that. I mean, if I would up to you, I'm like, dude, will you follow me? You'd be like, no, thank you. You know, like you're, you're a dork. For Jesus, this would have been next level. So when these guys are leaving everything behind in order to follow after Jesus, there's a bit of them that like is in, in, in an instant. I waited my whole life to hopefully follow a rabbi and nobody chose me and Jesus just chose me. I'd leave everything to go follow Jesus and become like him. And so that's what Jesus is calling them to do. So then Jesus lists the names. He says, now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and, Matt, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. 
In Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus told his disciples that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So being a disciple of Jesus was not about prophesying. It wasn't about healing or performing miracles, but it rather the true disciple is the one who's known by Jesus and who does the will of the Father. In Matthew 8, 18 through 21, Jesus points out to two of those who offered to follow him that being a disciple of Jesus was not a comfortable calling. He says it requires putting him ahead of home, him ahead of family, and like Jesus, not even having anywhere to lay your head. In Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13, Jesus responds to the Pharisees who objected to his association with tax collectors and sinners by telling them that following Jesus was not an exercise in piety, that it's a radical reorientation to the mission of Jesus himself. Jesus said, for I came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. And this is who Jesus is calling them. Not the religious elite, not the best of the best. He's calling the, 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 the sinners, the tax collectors, like the people that nobody else wanted is who Jesus is asking now to come follow him. Uh, and, and then as Jesus prepares to send his laborers into the harvest, he actually begins to prepare them for what's ahead. Like I was saying from the beginning, like he goes, he tells them what's in store, right? Poverty, rejection, persecution, losing your lives just as Jesus lost his life, being persecuted, possibly dying just like Christ did for you, that they would be dragged before governors and kings, that they'd be killed by their own brothers and fathers and, and children, that they'd be hated for Jesus' sake. And then here's the kicker of it all, that Jesus' disciples will face these things because he sends them out with his authority. These men didn't equip themselves for battle, right? They didn't conjure up all their own version of bravery and all their own version of, uh, uh, of, uh, uh, of power in order to go out and do the work that Jesus has called them to do. They didn't represent the cream of the, cro the crop. They actually relied on the strength of Jesus himself, like the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work for them. So you had this tax collector for the Roman government who was this social outcast. You had a fisherman and his brother and two business partners. You had a couple of working class guys from Galilee. You had a guy who repeatedly expresses doubts and uncertainties about what Jesus says and does. And then you have this political extremist and this traitor. And what really matters was not who these 12 men were, or even their lack of qualification for the job. But what matters is that Jesus gave them his authority to carry out the tasks that he assigned to them. And you and I should take a deep breath in that. Because some of us sit here today and think, like, I'm just not a good enough Christian. I just don't do enough. I need to go do more things. I need to conjure up the strength to be able to do that. I need to find the passion and compassion for people to go do the things that Jesus asked me to do. Like, this seems like an impossible feat, and Jesus is saying it is impossible because it's done by my authority. We just spent three chapters leading up to this where Jesus is continuing to remind them of who he is and the power he has, that they're not just walking with some random rabbi, that they're actually walking with the Messiah, the king of the universe. They're actually walking with the one who can stop storms and heal the sick. But the mission of the 12 was this extension of the mission of Jesus, to proclaim his kingdom to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And, and this is why there's sort of an expectation to be received as Jesus himself was received. 
with rejection, to, to bear their own cross as Jesus bared his cross. And the, the mission, like the promise was that the mission would not be halted. The, the preaching mission of the 12 was just the beginning of the task, but it wasn't the end. And so Jesus declares that in the end times that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And so here's a couple reminders that I want to leave with you guys and um, just three things that I want to leave with you. One, that no matter what your background, no matter how unqualified you are, no matter how undeserving you are, because there's many days that I get up and go, I'm totally undeserving to do the work that you've asked me to do, Lord. But no matter how unqualified, undeserving you are of following Jesus, I need to remind you this morning that he's called you. The call has gone out to his Talmudim, his disciples. And it's up to you and whether or not you will choose to follow him. But just remember that Jesus isn't forcing you. He's not telling you to go out and do these things or else. You actually choose in your own volition to follow after him, to lay your life down, life down to follow after Jesus. The second thing is that this choosing to follow Jesus does mean laying your life down for Jesus. It means beginning to align your whole life with his, like your rabbi. And the reality is that we, we read in other historical writings that 11 of the disciples died how? By martyrdom. One of them makes a, a stupid decision and then goes out and hangs himself pretty early on, right? The rest of these guys were martyred. They lost their lives for Jesus. Now, what would have happened if Jesus told them in the beginning, like, you will die, you know? Like, just, I mean, Jesus hints towards that. Some of you are going to lose your life. Some of you are going to be persecuted for what, but all of them, literally all of them lost their lives for Jesus. And I find it so interesting that we've presented such a cheap form of followership in the church that we're in today, in America. Because we, we tell people to lay down their lives to follow him, but I want to ask you this morning, what does that mean and what is the actual cost? Has that cost you anything to follow after him? Like we tell people that the harvest is ripe and that we are the called of God to go labor in the harvest, but do we actually recognize the honor and the responsibility that we've been given to do so? Do we get that? The apostles were martyred, weren't martyred for their beliefs. What were they actually martyred for? What they did. Actually following through with their testimony is what they were martyred for. They weren't martyred for what they believe. And I think that's an important point because many of us would say like, I believe in Jesus. Belief in Jesus won't get you killed. Doing what Jesus did will. And for the disciples, for the apostles that were martyred, it was literally them choosing to be obedient to the Lord despite everything coming against them, that they lost their lives for him. And you and I don't quite understand the weight of that at this point right now in the country that we live in, not many people are losing their lives for Jesus. But I will tell you this. If you chose to follow him without thinking that that would never be the case, I think there'll be a rude awakening in store. Because I think there will be a day when we will have to choose. Will you take the bullet? <laughs> like, do you seriously love Jesus? 
Or would you cave when it came to hell and high water in your life? And when we tell people to follow Jesus and we encourage them to become a disciple of Jesus, I think this is part of the discussion. Like, do you want all in? Are you willing to leave it all behind to follow after him? And I think that we have a version of that, but I don't know if we understand the full weight of that. I don't understand the full weight. Like, I have a truck and a house, and like, I, I've got all these amenities and things in my life, and, and I've got this like blessed life, hashtag blessed life that I live, right? And, and so I would say that I'm all in, but I don't know that I've had to go there yet to actually make the decision, but I want to be there. You know, I want to be all in. And I think when we look back at the apostles and what Jesus was leading them to, it was leading them to a point where it was just like abandoning everything to follow Jesus, regardless of the cost. We still believe that you have the authority, that you are King Jesus. And even in hell and high water, I trust that you are in charge of my life and you know what's best moving forward better than I do third thing, and the last thing, I'll ask the worship team to come up. The last reminder is this, that the kingdom of heaven and, and the disciples were sent out um, not only to proclaim to the lost of Israel and the family that Jesus was preaching to, but that that's been extended, extended to us as well. Like, it wasn't just to the lost sheep but it actually has been extended to the Gentiles. It's gone out and it's gone through the nations. And you and I today partake in this. We're part of the family. Like Jesus is talking to his own family, the, his, the Israelites, the Jews. But for you and I, because of the gospel of Jesus, because of his grace, because of his ability to forgive sins for everybody in all time, you and I get invited into this amazing opportunity to follow after him. And this is where it was headed, that Jesus is sending the 12 to preach the kingdom, to begin this harvest that he's caused to occur, to draw other people into his flock, that we're no longer lost sheep. You're not lost. You're no longer a sheep without a shepherd, that you've been brought into a kingdom. And as I wrap up today, like what an awesome day for us to celebrate the new life that Jesus has brought to a couple people that are gonna get baptized. Like honestly, Toby and Pamela, just the day you walked in and you started sharing your story with me, it like encouraged my heart. Because for me, like seeing that Jesus is on the move and he's actually drawing people to himself and he's radically reorienting lives is hopeful to me. It's hopeful to me. I don't see it enough. We live in a, a community of 150,000 people where maybe 20% of them profess to have faith in Jesus. And that means there's a lot of people that don't know the Lord. And it means that the 20% are the laborers that Jesus has called out to go pick the corn off the husk. And like the people who are standing before us this morning, being baptized, proclaiming the fact that Jesus has come he set me free. He saved me. The statement they're making to you is that I'm all in. I'm all in. We don't even understand the way to baptism in our country. I'm not trying to bash America this morning, but like contextually, we just don't always get it. 
you traveled to like a Hindu world or a, a Muslim um, country, and you watch as people profess to follow Jesus, there's the initial, I want to be saved and I'm going to follow Jesus, which is big when they're coming out of, when they're converting from like the Hindu faith or, or, or they were Muslims. However, at the point of being baptized is when all heck breaks loose. Because when they go to get baptized, what they're saying is, I'm not just giving it lip service, I'm actually doing it. I'm going down in the waters of baptism with Jesus. The old has gone and I'm taking on Jesus' identity that when I come out of the water, I am not the same person that I used to be. I'm leaving that behind to chase after him regardless of the cost. I'm carrying my cross and I'm following after Jesus with all of my life. And I literally stood in India and watched people be baptized knowing as their families stood around them and watched them be baptized that they were being disowned the minute they came out of water, the water. And at that point, you start realizing, like, we have it so easy. Give your life to Jesus. Be baptized with him. Go co-labor with him in the work that he's called us to. You live in a place that affords you an amazing opportunity to do that. While others around this world are like literally being baptized, knowing they're going to be disowned or killed the minute they step out of that water. I mean, that's just insane. But there's something powerful in what's about to take place for us. And so today, as Pamela and Toby are baptized, the statement that they're making to you is that they've chosen to devote their life to Jesus and follow after him. And so symbolically, they're going to be baptized today to symbolically show that they were raised that they died the death to themselves, that they were raised to life in Jesus. But for you guys as the church, here's, here's the most amazing part. It's that they're telling you that they're part of the family. And as the church, the decision we get to make today is like, will we surround them and pray for you guys, support you guys, walk with you guys, that you guys would know that we're not just people of lip service, we're people that are in this thing, that you are not solo on the mission that you've chosen to follow Jesus. Like you have a church family that wants to walk this out with you because we know the hell and high water are coming. Like it will get hard. We're there for you. And so I'm excited that you guys get to do this today. And I'm excited that our church gets to share in this moment and watch the gift that Jesus has provided you guys and what he's doing in your lives. It's seriously amazing, you guys. And so uh, we're gonna sing a song. And uh, Toby and Pamela and myself are going to go um, put on some bathing suits. And we're going to come out and do some baptisms and rejoice in the Lord. And maybe do some more singing together. So would you guys stand with me and let me pray. And then let's sing. Jesus, I thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. I thank you, Lord, that you saw us when we were lost. When we were harassed and helpless when we were wandering aimlessly like sheep without a shepherd. I thank you for your grace and your mercy that plucked us away from being lost to being found and rescued us. And I just pray for every person in this room that this morning, Lord, I know there's some here that don't know you. I pray that maybe this morning would be an encouragement to them to follow after you with their whole life. Lord, for some of us in this room, we know you and I'm just praying, God, that even watching these baptisms this morning would reinvigorate something in us that we would feel like, you know what, there's more to this. And I do not want to waste what God's given me. 
Jesus, use me. Take my life. Use it, Lord. Continue to help us make a daily decision to deny ourselves, to follow after you, to make our lives about you, that all of our lives would be a reflection of you, that our heart would be reoriented around you, Rabbi, King Jesus. We love you in your name. Amen.